This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for being here with me. Hope you enjoyed uh, time with your family. Today's a holiday for many people around the globe. And so hopefully you have done that. But at the table, there may have been somebody who you thought uh, may be struggling with memory issues. And, you know, a lot of people have a fear of dementia because dementia is on the rise. Of course, we are all living longer, um, but we do want to live better. And so there's really no cure. There is no cure for dementia. And dementia is the umbrella term. There are a number of reasons for dementia, including Alzheimer's disease, which accounts for approximately 80% of dementia cases. But there are a number of other reasons that you may get dementia as well, but how do we prevent dementia? I actually do some work with an organization uh, that is in the home care industry, and and so it's really important in taking care of those clients that the our caregivers understand the best way uh, to care for individuals, clients with memory issues, because that's really how it um, often begins or how it's often noticed. But also little known is that visual issues may be a problem for many people and can be uh, considered one of the first symptoms. There's a group out of New York that is at, at Cornell, I believe, that is has actually redefined Alzheimer's disease and says and or dementia and says this is actually a midlife disease. So oftentimes the symptoms may come along early in life, much earlier than one expects, but the decline may not happen until somebody is in their 70s or 80s or the impact on their quality of life, their ability to make purchases, their ability to cook, their ability to remember things, their ability to work, um, because it can affect some people on the job. And there are a number of different types of dementia, Lewy body dementia, posterior cortical atrophy uh, is another type of dementia. So lots of different types, uh, but how do we prevent this when there's no cure, there is no treatment? So I was very interested to see an article out of the New York Times, and it's something that I say to my patients in my clinical practice all the time, and not necessarily just thinking about Alzheimer's disease or dementia, but um, how they can actually live the best life possible. And because it's it's about this moment, it's about living in the moment, being present, because that is all you really have is this moment. And so you want to live that moment in the best way possible and with a calm approach. Life is for the living. And so you want to live it well. And so how do you live it well? And uh, you know, I know you think of what I do in my clinical practice is strictly around sex, and it is. That's the end game for a lot of people that come to see me. But it takes a lot of work prior to that for them to actually get into bed with somebody else or themselves, whatever. But um, there's a lot of work that I do around body image issues for people and weight and um, function, mobility, uh, and uh, clarity, uh, also getting along with their partner, how, you know, putting the pause button on and, and what, so these three steps that I'm going to tell you about that have been shown are the only things that you can do to prevent dementia are also things that will help you to live a good life today. So you're probably thinking that I've got some panacea, some supplement, something like ginkgo, biloba. No, supplements do not work. They're, they, they're, 
scientists have said there is no magic shield against Alzheimer's disease and other dementias, but there are some strategies that you can do, and they do not involve supplements. Do not waste your money. Let me tell you, according to a lot of research out there, uh, the supplements... Um, are often not contained. They don't contain what they claim to contain, number one. And if you hear this thing, oh, this is going to increase your memory, this is going to help you be more focused, this is going to help you be more organized, they are not. They will not do it. Now, there are some supplements that are helpful, vitamin D, for example, that can help um, for people who may be prone to SAD, situational affective disorder, Um, you know, omega-3, that might be good. But I always say you get your best nutrition from your diet. And if you're concerned about your diet, come and see me. I'll send you the all-in diet if you want to get all-in. I, I, I especially... I actually developed that for my patients with erectile dysfunction. And and so there's so many men that have erectile dysfunction and they're embarrassed to actually seek treatment until they do, until they come and see me. And then, you know, within a month, they're actually able to attain and maintain an erection adequate for penetrative sex based on the diet that I give them. And then some of these other steps that I'm so happy to see can also prevent dementia or Alzheimer's disease. So I didn't realize I was on double duty. I'm getting half the, uh, half the price, but, uh, but I am uh, affecting a lot of things. Occasionally, somebody uh, with memory issues or diagnosed with dementia may be prescribed a form of vitamin E, which, is, um, which you know may help, may not, but it's not something that has been shown. It doesn't hurt. And even if there's a tiny chance it's going to help a little bit, why not if somebody can afford it? That's not one of the most expensive supplements. But I'm talking about the supplements that are like, you know, they have these catchy names and they cost about $80 a bottle and, you know, they're advertised all over the place. Don't even listen. Email me first. Ask me. I'll give you my opinion on it. Um, But, you know, a lot of people take those supplements without any medical guidance. And the FDA and Health Canada estimate that 80% of older adults rely on dietary supplements, many purporting to prevent or treat Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. It's all a lie. Don't do it. And in fact, the FDA cracked down on this burgeoning market, sending warning letters and advisories to 17 companies selling about 60 different supplements with names like Go Memory, Mind Ignite, Cogniflex. So you know what? Really think about that because there are some other things that you can do that are not going to cost you any money uh, to do them. And so it's really important. There's no evidence that vitamins, various antioxidants, I mean, that's a big catch word out there. Concoctions derived from animals and plants, forget about it. They are not going to work. There is no scientific evidence. There's no literature to support that any of these things are preventive. In fact, they have no effects at all. And, you know, a lot of companies still sell ginkgo or ginkgo bilobo um, because, you know, you have to check the contents. Actually, read the label. See if ginkgo is even in there. Oftentimes, it's not. The other thing that you have to be concerned about with supplements is that they are biologically active and they may cause toxicity when you take other drugs. And believe me, the, the senior people, the people in that demographic, they are taking a lot of drugs. People will say to me, well, can I, shall I bring anything to my appointment with you? And I say, bring your list of medication, you know, and, and, 
oftentimes people don't even know what they're on. And, and then it takes them a lot to actually find their list of medications and they don't know the dosages. And, you know, um, so it's really important that you do not take any additional supplements or natural vitamins or all this. You are totally wasting your money and you might have just might as well just wave it, wave goodbye to it in the toilet because that's where it's actually leaving your body. Now, the thing with dementia and genetics and many other medical conditions, there is a role for genetics and there is a role for bad luck, but I want you to have good luck. So here, here's the three things that you can do to increase or to prevent dementia, to ward off losing your memory, to ward off your organization, your executive function. Number one, increase your physical activity. Daily exercise every single day. Make it like you're brushing your teeth. Hopefully you do that every day or at least three or four times a day. Um, so increase that physical activity. At least 30-minute power walk every single day. If not, mix it up. Swimming, biking, going to the gym, rock climbing, anything at all. Stay active. Humans are meant to stay active. This is critical. Blood pressure management for those of you with hypertension, particularly in midlife. I tell my patients, you want your blood pressure 120 over 80 and then cognitive training. Cognitive training means picking up an instrument, learning something new at midlife. So those are the three things that you can do. Increase your physical activity. Make sure your blood pressure is 120 over 80 or below. And you know what? Pick up a musical instrument. It might make you a nicer person. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Louise joins me in studio, and that's not her real name, but that doesn't matter because Louise could be any mother, any woman who is thinking about or who has had a baby. Louise is going to share her story of postpartum depression, which is a complex mix of physical, emotional, and behavioral changes that happen in a woman after giving birth. It is a form of major depression, according to the DSM-5, that has its onset within four weeks after delivery. The diagnosis of postpartum depression is based not only on the length of time between delivery and onset, but also the severity of the depression. Some of the symptoms of postpartum depression are actually similar to what happens normally after you've had a baby. Difficulty sleeping, appetite changes, fatigue, decreased libido, frequent mood changes. But these are also accompanied by other symptoms of major depression, which are not normal after childbirth and may include depressed mood, loss of pleasure, feelings of hopelessness, worthlessness, helplessness, thoughts of death, or death by suicide, or thoughts of hurting someone else. Thank you so much for joining me in the Thanks. studio, Louise. Thanks, Maureen, for having me. I really appreciate this. So you had a baby a couple of years ago, and, and you suffered after you had your baby. Can you yeah. tell the listeners about that experience? Um, yes, I did uh, suffer afterwards. It was a big life change. Um, I went through a C-section, and had some complications with the epidural, and it kind of sent me into this survival mode. Um, and then as well, having this new baby, feeding the baby, taking care of the baby, and trying to put all my energy into that, and not really taking care of myself. Um, and I started to notice my mood would change. I became a lot sadder, Was felt like anything I did wasn't helping the baby or those around me and that there were a lot of expectations I realize now I was putting on myself but 
um, I thought everyone else was putting on me. Um, yeah. And this is supposed to be the happiest yes. time in a woman's life. <laughs> and did you have that question? Did you say to oh, yourself? Really. And everyone looks at you too and they're like, oh, you have a new baby. Let's see the new baby. And they ask you questions about you, but it's kind of more like, oh, so how's it going with the feeding? Or it's a lot about the baby. So you kind of think, okay, this, this must be normal. And did you have difficulty feeding the baby? Um, I did at first, yeah. I ended up uh, breastfeeding, but there was a lot of uh, weird positions I ended up getting into. <laughs> right, because the latch um, wasn't so the easy. the latch wasn't easy. It wasn't like how they mention it or picture, <laughs> make you picture it. Right, and um, do they... It definitely dis- took a couple weeks of like, yeah. <laughs> and, and for some women, it takes a lot longer than that. Yeah. Uh, recently, I saw um, on social media that a big, gigantic breast just to raise awareness about mm-hmm. breastfeeding on some of the buildings in London, England. But also, you want to say fed is best. You know, for yes. many women put pressure on themselves to breastfeed. Did you feel that? Yeah, there was a lot of pressure. Um, so no offense to the nurses at all, but they were like, oh, you've got you've to get the milk in. You've got to try the latch, try this position. And at one point I was on all fours and my husband was like, this does not look natural. This is not breastfeeding. It doesn't sound <laughs> And I was like, naturally. no, I'm hurting. And this is hurting my back. And because I had a C-section, my abs were hurting. And finally we got in the rhythm and he did end up, because luckily I had a lot of milk. I just couldn't, we couldn't figure out the nat- the latch. And and, the, um, and sometimes yeah. you can get or, or women can when they can't when they have a lot of milk and mm-hmm. their breasts become enlarged and they become engorged and yeah. the milk won't let down <laughs> and they can't feed the baby and the baby is screaming and crying. Totally, a lot of anxiety starts to come in because you think, oh, I can't do this. I can't feed my baby. How is it going to survive? Obviously, there's formula out there, but there's a lot of pressure of like, oh, you gotta breastfeed and do this, and then. Even once you do start breastfeeding, the breastfeeding in public, and um, there's a lot of eyes on you when you have a newborn. There is. And, and you feel like you want a bit of privacy. Right. And people are so happy to see, you know, there's nothing like there's a newborn baby. There's nothing like baby. a healthy newborn baby. Yes. And, and I want to get back to the natural part of breastfeeding because it's pegged mm-hmm. as natural. And there are certainly people who feel that that's the only way to feed yeah. a baby. And it's certainly not the only way to feed a baby. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't even matter year, years yeah. down the road, right? <laughs> no. And But did you, you felt that pressure from some of the nursing staff? Oh, definitely, yeah. And, and then even going through it, like there were times where it'd start blistering and stuff. And your said, nipples? Oh, no, yeah. Um, and they'd say, oh, no, keep trying, like push through this. And I did have midwives come in. They were a bit better, a bit softer with their approach and... Um, it gets intense when you have people saying, oh, this is normal. This is, um, you just got to stick with it. And when you're like, I'm trying to heal from so much, I don't know if I can stick with it. What's the other option? But you never hear the other option you know. until you fully, yeah. And there certainly is another option out there. And, there and is, yes. fed is, is actually best. <laughs> so the whole time you're trying to breastfeed your baby, you're also losing sleep yes. at night. Yeah. So you're up. Frequently, because babies oh, every, don't, they don't come home on an every two hour schedule or no. every four hour schedule. <laughs> Pretty sure it was every 20 minutes to an hour for the first little bit. And, and then, then my mental, I wasn't thinking properly at that's all. That's night after night that yeah. you're sleep deprived. Uh-huh. And so what were some of the things that happened when you weren't thinking right, as you say? Um, I could tell I wasn't functioning day to day. Stuff didn't seem clear anymore. 
Um, my interactions with friends, even family, seem different. Um, I started to realize, oh man, am I different? Like everyone seems so happy, um, and I don't. I feel like I can't. I can't even remember to do a simple task of remembering my keys before I go out, or locking the house up, or um, little things that would come naturally started to go. Right. I had a patient recently, and and she had so many things that happened on top of uh, having had a baby mm. as well. They Everybody got the flu in the family. Mm. Um, it went from one to the next. She had severe problems with her pelvic floor, which ah, can happen yes. as well. Yeah. You had a cesarean section, so less likely to have mm. those risks. She labored prior to her cesarean section, and that was why she had that um, those pelvic floor issues, and we don't address those. Um, do you think that uh, you were prepared well enough for having a baby? What what do you attribute to? Did it surprise? It was more of a surprise, to be honest. Um, I mean, we took the classes beforehand about the birthing classes, but it was a four-hour class on a Saturday. <laughs> um, they give you some images and stuff, but it doesn't prepare you for the mental stuff you go through. And, um, and no one really talks about it, so you don't... It's all the excitement they talk about. And yeah, you might feel like the sleepless nights and stuff, but it's, yeah. But they don't talk about that mental anguish. Yeah. No mention of that no in, the, mention. in the antenatal, in the prenatal classes? They would say little things like, oh, if you feel depressed, but they kept labeling it as depressed. And so when I started to go through it, um, I didn't actually realize it because everyone around me still seemed happy, but I thought I was still going through surgery stuff or still going through, oh, sleepless night. Everyone tells me I have sleepless nights. So everything kept getting masked by something else. Wow. So they never actually they never, yeah. <laughs> said the symptoms, like what you yeah, might feel. what the symptoms might feel, yeah. Right. And did you worry about your baby on top of it? At times, yeah, definitely. Yes. Mm. I mean, there are a number of risk factors for postpartum depression, a history of depression prior to becoming pregnant or during pregnancy, the age at the time of pregnancy, the younger you are, the higher the risk, ambivalence about the pregnancy, children, the more children you have, the more, this was your first, the Mm -hmm. more likely you are to be depressed in a subsequent pregnancy, having a history of depression or premenstrual dysmorphic disorder, PMDD, limited social support, living alone, or marital conflict. From our conversations, mm-hmm. you didn't have any yeah. of those. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. And so it can happen to any woman. But the other thing I want to talk about, and I'm going to ask you listeners to stay on because Louise is going to stay in the studio as mm-hmm. well, uh, the impact on your husband, the father of the baby, yeah. and then also some family <laughs> planning decisions as mm-hmm. a result of that. So stay with yeah. me. Louise is here with me. We're talking about postpartum depression, a very important subject. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I am delighted that Louise has remained in the studio with me. If you're just joining me now, Louise shared her story of postpartum depression after the birth of her first baby two years ago. She's here in studio to share a little bit more um, that the fact that postpartum depression affected her husband as well. Men actually can get postpartum depression 
also. And postpartummen.com is a place for men with concerns about depression, anxiety, or other problems with mood after the birth of a child can go. This website, because I wanted to tell you about help right at the beginning, because I want to give that message that there is help. There's no shame in having or experiencing depression after the birth of your baby, whether you are a woman or a man. And yes, men get postpartum depression. So this resource provides men with self-help. It promotes self-help, provides important information for fathers, including a self-assessment for postpartum depression. It hosts an online forum for dads to talk to each other. It offers resources and gathers new information about men's experiences with postpartum and most importantly, helps fathers to beat the baby blues. Now, you don't think typically that fathers actually get the baby blues, but they do. And it's important that we raise awareness about this mental health condition because it's important. Otherwise, people feel alone. They feel embarrassed. They feel shame. And, you know, it's even more difficult with the birth of a baby because this is meant to be the happiest time in a person's life. They're filled with pride and excitement typically, or that's what the conventional wisdom is. That's how you're supposed to feel. But you know what? That is not reality. Reality is screaming babies and sleepless nights. There can also Uh, be fights that ensue with your partner. You can be going to work exhausted. It may increase your risk of substance use or abuse. And you may have lost your sense of humor over all of this and not feel that there's not a lot to look forward to. So that's why I am delighted that Louise has stayed in the studio to share her story about what happened to her husband after the birth of their baby. Louise, thank you so much for staying in the studio and sharing your story. Thanks for having me. So tell me, uh, one may not be surprised that you experienced symptoms of postpartum depression after you had your baby, but your Mm -hmm. husband did as well. Tell me about that. He did, yeah. Um, So after having our child, um, he went into quite an angry state um, of postpartum. Uh, We both didn't realize it at first um, because it's not talked about at all, really, um, until later on. Uh, So he ended up really missing his old life, um, missing um, sleep and all of this. And because both of us weren't getting a lot of sleep, uh, it started to really affect him um, and our relationship. And because I was going through a lot, too, with postpartum and Uh, dealing with a new child and stuff, um, our communication started to drop out. And yeah, things started to get a little rough. (laughs) It sounds it. And your husband is an easygoing guy generally. Yes. Yeah. And, and, but you know, uh, we, and we call this paternal postpartum depression or PPPD. Women tend to turn uh, to theirs to sadness and fear and their fear inward. And when they experience postpartum depression. There's a lot Mm. of internal thinking. But men are more likely to express depression through anger, aggressiveness, Mm. irritability, and anxiety. And they are also susceptible to other manifestations such as increased use of substances, uh, drinking or drugs or addictive behaviors like gambling, Mm. that kind of thing. Now, you didn't have any of that. We didn't have that, no. Um, But how did this surprise you, This that your husband was 
behaving or, you know, demonstrating these symptoms while you were having problems as well. And I imagine he was working at the time. He was. Yeah. Um, it seemed like a totally different person than, um, previous to baby. And, uh, we'd been married for two years, I'd say two and a half years before we had our child. Um, and it was, we were, even people had commented saying, you guys have the best relationship. You're both happy, go lucky kind of people. And then we have the kid, our child, and all of a sudden, both of us aren't feeling right. And um, there was a lot of anger, a lot of yelling at each other, um, a lot of just not communicating. So he he did he was working full time. He didn't take much time off. It was about a week, um, but it was hard. I could start to notice that like work was starting to require him to stay longer hours. And realized afterwards it was because he was scared to come home. He didn't know how to handle home life. He mm-hmm. said, I had changed. Obviously, I had. And he said he had changed. And he didn't know how to be around the baby mm-hmm. um, or me with the baby. And said he couldn't help out. He didn't know how to help. He felt very helpless. Um, I have a background in education, in early childhood education. And he, yeah, felt wow. intimidated. <laughs> and did he speak? seek out help, support? Did he go to Um, see his doctor? Not right away. Um, Both of us were kind of trying to plug through it all. And then I'd say a year, both of us were like, okay, we need to reach out because we're on very different pages now. Um, This isn't healthy for us or for our child. Uh, So we did end up going and seeing a counselor at the end. Yeah. And was he diagnosed actually with postpartum depression? Did he get that diagnosis? She actually said you have all the symptoms of postpartum. Um, but cause he didn't come in sooner, she wouldn't give him the full label. (laughs) Okay. But he'd had those symptoms, but he had all the symptoms. And she said the way that your relationship unfolded, um, he had postpartum um, and stuffing their emotions, um, which men are really comfortable doing because yes. the effort to men is feelings. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so, um, you know, that can make it worse yeah. as well. Um, but oftentimes, I think the most critical thing here is that, you know, men who are suffering with these symptoms are not alone. Mm-hmm. According to a study published in 2010 in the Journal of American Medical Association, 10% or 1 in 10 men around the world experience paternal postpartum depression. And so it's critical to remember that and that there is help. Hormone factors are considered a major factor in female postpartum depression. And it's another study found that that may also be the shift for men, mm-hmm. that they may be having a hormonal um, issue also. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to, if you notice the symptoms of postpartum depression, increased anger and conflict with others. Um, increased use of alcohol or prescription street drugs, frustration or irritability, violent behavior, significant weight gain or loss, isolation from family and friends, being easily stressed, impulsive or risk-taking, reckless driving, extramarital affairs, feeling discouraged, cynicism, increase in complaints about physical problems like headaches, problems with concentration or motivation, loss of interest in work, hobbies or sex, Working constantly, which is that's mm-hmm. one that your husband had. Mm-hmm. Concerns about productivity, functioning at work or school, fatigue, feeling sad mm-hmm. or crying for no reason, and conflict between how you feel you should be as a man and how you are, and also mm-hmm. thoughts of death by suicide or thoughts of, of death. So um, it's really important that the men reach out as well. And, and you, you said at the beginning, 
it's not talked about at all, yeah. less so than <laughs> women with postpartum depression. I didn't even realize it was a thing. <laughs> a lot of people don't realize that it's a thing. Well, mm-hmm. thank you for coming into the studio to share your story and letting people know that postpartum depression is a thing in men and women, Louise. Thank you. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for being here with me on this holiday for many people around the globe. Right now, I want to talk about fertility. And when we think about fertility or infertility, we think about the woman, the impact on the woman, and it must be the fact that she can't have a baby. But there's a male factor that plays a significant role in fertility issues, which are common in people today in many couples. And in fact, one in six couples will experience fertility concerns. Dr. Gary Nakuda is co-director of the Olive Fertility Center. He graduated from New York Medical College and spent the next 12 years at New York's Columbia University Medical Center, where he completed a residency in obstetrics and gynecology. He did a fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. He's also served on the faculty of the Center for Women's Reproductive Care. During his time at Columbia University, he was active in both basic science and clinical research, publishing over 20 research articles and textbook chapters. He, Dr. Gary Nakuda repeatedly received the Patient's Choice Award for Outstanding Clinical Care. He is a board-certified physician in both OBGYN and reproductive endocrinology and infertility by the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Nakuda. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so when we think about infertility, uh, which affects about 15% of couples, uh, we associate that with the issue that that a woman um, has the issue, that her eggs may be too old, she may be too old, you know, that 35, that biological clock ticks away. But what about the male factor? Uh, How common is it that the reason uh, there may be fertility issues is because of the male partner? Uh, yeah, it's quite common. It kind of depends on various estimates, but as a sole cause of infertility, the males are responsible probably at least 20% of, t- of the time. And, you know, overall, when you look at both the combination of male and female factors, uh, there's a male factor involved probably about half the time. So it's, you know, fair to say that uh, males are uh, just as commonly involved in reasons for infertility as uh, females. And we don't think about that, but which is why it's important that a couple seek treatment together. Do do you find at all of fertility, oftentimes the woman presents initially? Oh, absolutely. It's very common. You know, most of the time the couples uh, present together, I would say. Um, But at least, um, you know, another 30, 40% of the time, it's just the female uh, that presents alone. And, you know, I think it's for various reasons. I think women are somewhat more invested um, in taking charge of their fertility. Um, I think uh, we men tend to be stubborn and um, probably a little bit in denial. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions uh, among men that, um, you know, they're perfectly healthy and fertility is issues must be due to their um, female partner and not them. And even a lot of women actually, you know, take the blame on on their own. And, you know, it's remarkable how many women will come in and say, oh, no, I know it's me. It's not not my husband. It's not my boyfriend. Um, So 
a, a very common misconception. And do they take that blame prior to even being tested? Yes, uh, I think a lot of women um, will seek um, treatment and testing without even telling their partner. I think they, they feel a certain amount of guilt or responsibility and um, completely dismiss the fact that they may have nothing to do with it. It simply might be on the male side. That is so interesting. Now, I often say men are really uncomfortable with the F word, feelings. Uh, so <laughs> when, when men learn that the male factor is involved in their fertility issues with the woman in their life, what, what is their response? How do they feel about that? Does this attack their manhood? Do they feel badly or guilty? What are some of the feelings? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Of course, it varies from one individual to the next, but in many cases, I find that the men take it much harder than the women. You know, the women can somehow accept that there's a fertility problem on their side and there are things that we can do to address it. But when, you know, the men find out that they have issues with their sperm count or some other issue, they, they you know, I, I think it bruises the ego. Uh, you know, maybe it goes a little deeper than that. Um, but the, many men can take it, uh, you know, in a really difficult uh, way. It, it can be a challenge for them. And, and what are some of the treatments for, for men's um, sperm count, for example, or motility issues? Yeah, so it depends on the reason, right? So when we're doing an, an evaluation, um, you know, as you refer to, we check the sperm count, and you know, there's several different parameters, um, but it's not just the count, which refers to the amount of sperm, but also the percent of moving sperm and, and the morphology. So we look at the different parameters and to what degree they're affected, and um, we need to evaluate the individual. Uh, it starts with getting a full history, um, asking about things like childhood illnesses and injuries, uh, chronic medical conditions, uh, medications they could be taking, um, you know, environmental uh, factors, uh, habits like smoking, alcohol, etc. So we're trying to first pinpoint a, a possible reason because often you can identify a reason. And so the, the treatment will focus on that. Um, what about uh, yeah. the childhood illnesses? What, what, what's a common one that will affect um, sperm? Uh, sure. So the common thing you hear about is uh, mumps. Mumps infection can cause infertility, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, undescended testicles, um, which is not terribly uncommon, although usually picked up at an earlier age. Um, different uh, injuries. There are genetic diseases like cystic fibrosis, which um, can present in its very subtle manifestation strictly as a fertility problem. Interesting. And what are some of the medications that may affect sperm count or motility? Um, so one of the uh, most commonly abused medications is testosterone. Um, we see that um, in, you know, bodybuilders, you know, we're in a place like Vancouver, but he's very conscious of their uh, appearance. Um, and that, that, I would say, is the number one thing. That, you know, it makes men feel good, helps you build your muscle mass but it has a definite uh, negative impact on sperm production and fertility. And when they realize that, are, are men willing to come off of the testosterone? And um, I think they have, many of them have a hard time mm -hmm. because the tes testosterone is, uh, you know, it, again, it, it makes men feel 
very good and energetic and alive. It um, and, you know helps their sex drive, libido, muscle mass. So when they realize they have to come off of it, um, you know, most of those guys are not very happy. Oh, I can imagine. And um, also, <laughs> also in terms of frequency, and I know you're going to be covering some of these questions in the event that you're having, an informational talk on fertility in Vancouver, British Columbia on April 24th for Fertility Awareness Week. Um, but what is the best time for, um, you know, for intercourse for couples who are trying to conceive? Yeah, that's uh, one of our most common questions is, um, you know, when should we be having sex and how often we should be having sex? Um, so the, the most important thing is the timing around um, the uh, woman's ovulation, right? So that's kind of a whole another issue. But typically in a 28-day cycle, um, the uh, average woman's going to ovulate somewhere around uh, day 14, uh, but the idea is that the, the egg is really only viable for about uh, a day, 24 hours or so. But the window of fertilization is as much as six days before ovulation, right? So my little tagline that I tell patients is that any time you try before ovulation is procreational and any time after is recreational. So really the, the time, timing is the most important thing and that there are methods that kind of time it better. Um, and one of the things you can do is use an ovulation kit. That's a fairly objective way. You know, you can buy these at the, you know, any of the drugstores, but it'll tell you when um, the woman is, is not actually ovulating, but about to ovulate. So um, we will counsel our patients, uh, you know, use an ovulation kit, and when it turns positive, try three days in a row. And so um, consecutive efforts for three days in a row uh, really uh, has been shown to kind of give the highest um, chance of conceiving in a given cycle. Now, that said, um, using ovulation kits and trying to time it very precisely also stresses people out, you know, it can kind of take away from the joy of, of trying. So, you know, it's, it's something that doesn't work for everybody uh, when you look at the big picture, but as far as the timing, that's most important. And the other thing that you hear a lot it's better to try every other day than every day. And I think that comes from the misconception that if you ejaculate too frequently, it reduces the sperm count. And that, um, as a matter of fact, has been shown not to be true, particularly in guys who have uh, normal semen parameters. Um, if anything, abstaining too long will have a negative effect on the sperm function. You might increase the amount of sperm or the concentration, but you actually reduce the percentage of moving sperm, you get a lot more bad sperm and dead sperm and you ejaculate if you abstain too long. So if you had to err on one side or the other, it's better to try too frequently than not frequently enough. Well, it's fantastic information and there will be certainly more of that. Thank you, Dr. Gary Nakuda. But you'll have more of that information at the April 24th event for Fertility Awareness Week. You can register for that event by going to olivefertility.com. Will you be there, Dr. Nakuda? Uh, I think so. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Sunday Night Health Show. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network.
You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.